0: welcome all to nominal interest week three already the semester two is flying past this week we have a very special panel who are here to talk about issues that affect not only our generation but generations to come we're going to be talking about waste and also some contextual issues that are coming up in the next two weeks i'm very happy this morning to be joined by alex hello there winona hi and yale hi so guys We've got the panel here together today, and we're gonna jump straight into talking about waste in Australia. So just to contextualize quickly, each year we produce about 18 million tonnes of waste per year, the equivalent of three million garbage trucks that probably drove down your street on Monday morning. Each family, on average, contributes enough rubbish each year to fill a three bedroom house from floor to ceiling. So with the 18 million tonnes we produce each year, about seven million is attributed to the household sector. So that's why we're here today to talk about the economics of waste and also the policy responses behind it to fix this quite significant externality in the Australian market. So I'll throw it over to the panel members to begin today's discussion.
1: Um, yeah, so waste in, it, in economics is kind of what we would think of as the worst thing that we in a study that looks at how to most efficiently use resources. Um, we introduce governments to deal with dead weight loss. We introduce, um, any kind of, we, our whole models are built around the idea that we end up with an equilibrium with no waste. And obviously that is not happening. Um, and, um, I think for the average, a household losing $3,500 worth of food a year is quite significant. Um, but sort of, Are we aware of how much we waste? Do you guys feel like you're wasting on your day-to-day life?
2: I feel like it's one of those things that's in the back of your mind, but unless someone actually points it out, it's really not in the forefront of your life. Like we're always super busy, you know, the amount of time it takes to put a sandwich in, you know, a clip seal bag that we're going to throw away later that day is less time than it would take to, you know, go out, get a proper container. And it's just, it's not a lot of effort, but it's just no one really thinks about it. And I think as well as that, like the focus is really often on food. Like I think we get a lot about, you know, bring a mug to the cafe and you'll get, you know, a discount on your drink Mm. sort of stuff. But there's so much more waste and so many more industries than that. Like even if you just look at the fashion industry, like, there is so much waste there. Like, there's enough waste in the fashion industry that that is a crisis in and of itself without even acknowledging all the other types of waste that come from pretty much everything we consume.
3: Um, I'm guilty of using disposable plastic cutlery sometimes. Um, but, um, yeah, I think in personal life, it's something just not we really think about often because it's so available to us in the development. Countries, so we just buy what we need, whenever we need it, and that creates a culture of access.
0: So, we've got a couple interesting things coming out here, and we're known to bring up fashion is something that's on the talking points in a couple of minutes' time as well. But what you were saying, yeah, about the, uh, the deadweight loss uh, in this type of market and this externality that's been generated, I feel like it's interesting going on from what Alex said, it's a deadweight loss that we don't see. And it's easy to forget because rubbish chips aren't near our houses, aren't near our homes, and are very, although visibly an eyesore, not an eyesore we have to deal with. So that's why perhaps the recent coverage by Vice and the ABC is really something pertinent to not only critique the type of models of consumption that guide our lives, but also maybe uh, make us more aware of what's going on.
2: Mm. I think a lot of it isn't necessarily... I think if you ask someone, do you think waste is an issue, they'll most mm. likely say yes. I think the main issue is sustaining that care. because I think it's so easy to just become apathetic because waste isn't like a very sexy topic to talk about. Like no one wants to start, you know, a political debate about how should we deal with our waste. So it's really difficult to kind of garner that public interest and that passion for a sustained period of time. Like I feel like every few years it kind of comes up and is a big talking point for like a few weeks and then it dies down again. So I think the real challenge is, I think people acknowledge it's an issue, but getting people to care about that issue enough to actually do something about it. It's kind of like a classic collective action problem.
1: Mm. Um, and it's what we see with kind of climate change. Um, apathy just sort of takes over after a while, or it, maybe it's not even apathy. It's just like, oh, it's important, but oh, I, I have to get this assignment done enough for front. And I think waste is a, a part of that, because um, in order for, for it to remain in our collective consciousness, we have to like collectively decide to um, behave certain ways. Mm.
0: And it's just, just like the climate change issue. Um, it's very easy to feel like your individual action is insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Um, buying an energy-saving light bulb might not feel like you're a- aiding carbon abatement, but... I feel like that type of collective push is something that's definitely missing from the policy front. To bring up that fashion issue again, though, and it's been a real talking point this year, especially in regards to fast fashion. So the waste topic has ebbed and flowed and normally gone back to talking about aluminium cans, but we seem to have sorted out the aluminium can issue. The plastic bag issue seems like it's on the way out. Do we know how many countries have banned plastic bags? No. Uh, Coles and Woolies. I know Coles and Woolies. I know this, uh, the city of San Francisco has gotten rid of plastic bags. The Vic market is trialing a plastic bag free market. Mm-hmm. Um, South Australia has banned plastic bags as well.
1: Yeah, and so has Tasmania. Um, but it was interesting in that ABC mm. um, documentary, um, War on Waste, it's called, um, they showed that in Tasmania, they just then shops were offering slightly thicker plastic bags, which are worse. Um, and... Uh, because those were still allowed, there were loopholes in that legislation. Mm. Just things to keep in mind, I mm. guess.
0: So it's interesting with the with the fast fashion issue, that is something that is not as obvious as a waste problem uh, as plastic bags. We get see that statistic about 100,000 whales, dolphins and turtles die every year because of plastic products in the oceans. But we don't hear about H&M uh, cheap t-shirts strangul- strangling dolphins in the Pacific Ocean.
1: But doesn't it, it takes like twenty seven, two thousand seven hundred liters of water to make a T-shirt, which yeah. is huge. It's a huge amount of water, um, and uh, you know if we just wear them once and throw them out, which like I don't actually know somebody that does that, but um, <laughs> some apparently people do, and um, that's super wasteful.
0: Yeah, especially um, I mean, nor- the normal course of action is putting your stuff in a Vinnies uh, collection bin, so that's why it's the, quite a foreign concept to me to think that there are landfills f- literally packed full with cheap clothing. So do you think this problem is by virtue of, of an endless pursuit of production, productive efficiency that's resulted in endless output, or do you think it's on the consumer side of the problem in the demand side of this type of waste model?
2: I think it's a real combination of both. I think a lot of cheap fashion, which is really targeted at, you know, our demographic, younger people with less expendable income, it's not built to last. Like, those clothes are generally, not to say, you know, they're terrible clothes, but they're generally not high quality. Like, they're not, you know, that one pair of leather boots or that one really expensive coat that's going to last you for 10 years. It's something that's meant to last, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 wears, and then, you know, it's it's done with. You either discard it if it's completely disgusting or donated. So I think in the sense... The fact that the clothes that are being made aren't durable is a real big issue. Um, So that's probably more so on the supply side, like encouraging you, you know, why buy one T-shirt that'll last you three years when you can buy ten? But also, you know, on the consumer side, do we really need as many clothes as we have? Like looking through my... Um, wardrobe this morning I was like I have so much stuff in here I never wear oh my goodness I feel like a lot of people go through that and it's just kind of like well how much stuff do you really need so it's definitely a combination of factors
3: um I think it's just um companies are responding to consumer trends and how fast they're changing every month even so they fast fashion companies see that and adapt to that model of just churning out different styles every so often, so that creates a culture of, oh, there's new stuff, let me check it out, and companies responding to that consumerism.
2: Yeah. Plus, you know? the trends are so much more immediate now with social media, like, you can immediately see a trend one day and then go out and buy it the next day, which I think is, you know, becoming newer. Like previously it would take, you know, there'd be a cycle of things to come around, especially to Australia. Like it would take a little bit of time. So there was, you know, less, you know, waves of trends. But now I feel like it's getting, you know, closer and closer and closer between, you know, styles changing. True. You
1: can see somebody um, post a picture of themselves. Then the next thing that scrolls up on your Instagram is an advertisement by that same company uh, that you can just click and buy. And also, uh, fast fashion, it can get from factory to store in, like, two weeks. Mm, so the fast. Zara
0: production line's four days. Is something to, crazy. Yeah, something ridiculous. And I think that the, the result of that is every 10 minutes, 6,000 kilograms of textile waste ends up in Australian landfills. So uh, th- that type of statistic, uh, just like when we'll talk, we've talked, spoken on podcasts about the Great Barrier Reef, can seem so overwhelming that it doesn't really mean anything. So from a policy perspective, uh, we've seen time and time again in both our studies and in the real world that uh, guiding consumer preferences and really accurately understanding uh, consumer utilities is a difficult task to do. So from the policy frontier, what do you think is available on this textile issue to address the huge amount of landfill being generated every minute?
1: I think a huge problem with it is like Winona was saying, the quality has gone down as well. So um, even clothes that are sent to recycling units or uh, charities aren't actually useful most of the time because they're such poor quality, they can't actually be reused. Um, Which means that maybe part of the policy solution is to have some sort of quality assurance in clothes, which is really hard to do given Mm. that um, supply chains are so... Uh, Mm. diversified in, like, globally. Mm.
0: So according to Vinnies, it's about 25% of all donated clothing is uh, unusable due to quality concerns, uh, the inability for materials to be uh, repurposed, and also reworn. So the bulk that can't be reworn are sent to recycling plants, but a lot of the cheaper (coughs) polyester-type products even struggle at that stage and end up in landfill. So to move on from that food waste issue, uh, uh, I spoiled the sport the surprise. To move on from the fashion waste issue, the concept of food waste is something quite close to home. This morning, whilst I was making my very bourgeois yogurt muesli and berry breakfast,
1: that's what I had for breakfast. Yeah, I know. Too. I, know.
0: I, <laughs> I thought I thought maybe I should take an Instagram and. Uh, generate a new personal brand. The
1: concentrics
0: are yeah. A yeah, 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 yeah. Like the honey on the top oh, or something great. like that. <laughs> the tea by the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, know I mean? you can't see the honey at the bottom. You've got to get that little wooden
2: thing. And resort,
0: <sighs> oh, huh? I feel like this is a whole other topic of <laughs> cafe consumerism. But, um,
2: <laughs> Maybe another <long> time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the topic of food waste is interesting because I will go to Coles and buy a punnet of strawberries and some blueberries with the knowledge that it is impossible for me to eat a whole punnet. Of strawberries and a whole punnet of blueberries in the time it takes for them to expire. So it ends up happening at the er- end of every week. There are a couple of strawberries and a few blueberries that end up in a bit. And exactly, exactly, and that's a process. And just for the listeners, Yale, Yale <laughs> shot a very disapproving look.
1: No, that- I just—it's it, so easy to eat a punnet of strawberries. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but, this,
0: but this is this is something that is literally effortless and I don't even realize what I'm doing. Another example, eating a can of tuna, instead of doing the smart thing and washing the can of tuna before putting that into the recycling bin, I'll just throw the oily can of tuna into the recycling bin. And that's a whole bin of recycling suddenly spoiled. So the reason why I brought up food waste was because I wanted to pick your mind about whether the concept of food waste is a specifically first world problem and whether policy mechanisms should be constructed around focusing on not only domestic politics but uh, but the economies of the developed world.
2: I think the notion of food waste is just one that makes me essentially very angry because it's just the ultimate show of inefficiency. Like we've got people, like we've got a massive obesity problem in some countries. We're throwing away, you know, three strawberries yeah, uh, a week, and there's people. <laughs> And there's people that are starving. Like, I know this is such a, oh, you know, there's people starving overseas, but it's so true. Like, we kind of, it's just become, you know, a blasé issue that we don't really think about. But it's just like when you actually consider the fact that the amount of food that you just, I'm like, oh, that's not good enough. I don't want to eat that. I'm too full, whatever. The fact that that then goes in a bin and just becomes part of landfill when there's such, such need for it. It's just strawberries you're talking about. Every part of the strawberries comes in one of those plastic things, yeah. which isn't recyclable. So on top of throwing away your three strawberries, you're also throwing <laughs> away the plastic that it comes in. And it's just so inefficient. Like I've known people always, you know, chip packets are only filled two-thirds up, but like think of all that excess bag that just is unnecessary. Like
3: Well, their reasoning is to provide cushioning for the chips. I'm like,
2: I don't care if my chips are crushed, they still taste good.
3: Um, in France, actually, law passed last year that supermarkets can't chuck away food anymore. They have to be given to a food bank organization. So there's definitely a role for for the government to play to help us reduce waste. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's a topic that needs to be brought up by the public in order to generate momentum.
1: True. We need to decide that, one, like awareness allows us to... Um, know that these things are things that we value. Um, And until now, they've just been externalities that no one has, um, you know, taken account of. Uh, And we can as consumers, but also um, we need government intervention, because some Mm. of these things are much bigger. um, And to create real um, impact on the actual amount of waste, Mm. Um, you know, worm farms and such are very useful, and everyone should do them, um, including myself. Um, But... Other than that, um, we, we, there needs to be some systematic change.
0: Mm. So on that note of systematic change, a slight change, of course, to bring uh, an issue closer home and uh, much more relevant over the next few weeks is another intersection between government policy and uh, the acceleration of public consciousness. And that's the uh, decision this week uh, to go to a postal vote for the gay marriage uh, plebiscite. So with this issue uh, of same-sex marriage, it seems like our government has once again become held up on an issue that to some is quite obvious. And my personal opinion is that this is a great way for Malcolm Turnbull to uh, move attention away from which uh, MPs are citizens or not (laughs) Um, and also the many other problems plaguing the Liberal Party. So I'm interested to hear the opinions of the panel, especially in regards to the potential illegality of a postal vote.
3: Yes, the cost factor. Mm. There's been estimates of it cost $120 million to do this thing.
0: Yeah, so, so for some context for our listeners, um, yesterday the question was finalised. The, the ballot will state, should the law be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry. Uh, th- that question in and of itself has been uh, a very touchy point to the both Catholic and Anglican lobbies who are arguing that the actual wording of the bill should be made public before anyone even receives a postal vote. But that aside, like you were saying, Ax- uh, Alex, um, Scott Morrison has signed an advance of $122 million to the ABS to conduct the, uh, the first phase of the site on the same-sex marriage bill of 2016. So envelopes will be posted on September 12th, uh, running through till November 7th, and the results to be confirmed on the 15th. So, Winona, what do we as young people have to do between now and September 12th?
2: Register, make sure you're registered with the Australian Electoral Commission and that your address is updated. Two <laughs> things, very easy things, that's all you need to do. And then when the envelopes come out later in September, vote that's three things so register update address vote that's what you need to do please do it even though like i know it can be it's so frustrating it's like why is the abs running it not the aec it's not binding what does it matter it's essentially a survey monkey but it is really important this will keep the government accountable to what the australian people want they can't deny and say, oh, we don't know. We don't think it's in the public interest or we don't know if people want it. This will give them their answer and make it very, very difficult for them to back down and enacting legislation. So get out there and vote.
3: Yeah.
0: yeah.
2: I think boycott the, the idea of boycotting a sure. vote yeah. is um,
1: nonsensical. nonsensical oh, in the sense that yeah. you're just taking yourself out of the voting mm. pool. You're not mm. actually... Affecting it in any way. Correct. Um, uh, rather, you're not negatively impacting mm-hmm. um, the idea of the vote. Um, you're just saying uh, it's kind of a vote for in a way because um, you're reducing the pool of total votes. Yeah.
2: Even if the participation rate is 10%, the results are still going to be taken into account. So, you know, that doesn't really affect it. You just need to make sure that your voice is heard. In, as, the best way possible. That's
0: an interesting point you brought up about the participation rate because I can picture on the 12th of November, 15th of November when the results are released that once that participation rate is revealed it will be another way out for many Liberal conscious voters to vote no once the uh, Members' Bill hits the floor of Parliament. Um, Uh, many, sadly, uh, MPs from Queensland, uh, part of the National Party, have already made it very clear that they will rely on the vote of their constituency. Um, And Jackie Lambie, I believe, has said the same thing, that you will rely on the voting of her constituent in Tasmania.
1: Which is a huge problem with, you you know, usually our votes are compulsory Mm -hmm. here in Australia. And for this to be Mm -hmm. non-compulsory makes it... It, it creates loopholes in the whole... Po- like, it creates even less of a point to yeah. do a whole
0: plebiscite. Blem- well, <laughs> Matthias Cormann seems to think that's a fantastic thing because the US has non-compulsory voting and the US is going okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: By what standard?
0: Uh, Matthias Cormann's. Oh, okay. And... and <laughs> angry finance minister, Uh, who is claiming that the government has powers to pass under Article 51 of our Constitution up to $292 million for census and statistical purposes of national importance. So that is the article that's being debated and challenged in the High Court now through, I believe, two challenges, one through the marriage lobby and also one through uh, the independent member for, uh, does anyone remember off the top of their head? No. 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 Sadly. Um
2: Just one more quick note on that, mm-hmm. however. I think it is somewhat promising that Malcolm Turnbull has indicated that Liberal MPs will be able to cross the floor. Um, so even if they are the Conservative Party, there still, is, um, very, mm-hmm. there still is the ability for them to cross the floor, although unlikely it is possible.
0: That cuts both ways, though, because they've always had that ability. But the private members' bill was buoyed out of existence before the opportunity even presents itself for people to cross the floor. Um, the PM has stated in interviews that he would rule out further action, both if there's no vote or if the high court strikes down the male voting so that just nothing would, would happen. And the, the topic of crossing the floor is interesting because the an interview with Lee Sales earlier in the week touched on that topic and about how conscious voting wasn't required for changing of abortion bills, for when John Howard changed the Marriage Act back in two thousand and three, I believe, um, and also bills uh, regarding euthanasia. But for some reason, this topic uh, requires a conscience, uh, a conscience vote. I find that really interesting. so to extend upon that brief moment of awkward silence that yaz will cut out um, a number of the uh, I, w- I would really like to emphasize before we leave um, that the challenges to the high, the challenges in the High court um, and the seemingly illogical nature of the uh, a postal plebiscite may scare young people away and further disenfranchise uh, uh, especially p- disenfranchised minorities Um If anyone follows the Batuta advocate, I'm sure the next two weeks will prove increasingly entertaining. But just before we leave, um, to move away from that satire, I want to ask the panel uh, about the speech that was given by Penny Wong, uh, I believe it was two days ago. Has everyone caught a brief glimpse of that? I haven't. We saw finally an outpour of emotion and enthusiasm in Australian politics that has been absent for a very long time. Bill, followed, Bill Shorten sorry, followed that up yesterday with another very emotional, holistic speech. and I'm interested to see if this is perhaps the beginning of a more inclusive uh, environment in Australian politics.
2: I don't know if I'd go that far. I feel mm. like once the postal vote and hopefully the eventual legislation is passed, mm. so too will the discussion around gay marriage, I was talking to one of my friends who's from New Zealand and she was saying as soon as it was legalised in New Zealand, no one ever spoke about it. Mm. So I feel like in regards to gay marriage and just gay rights in general, this will kind of, not in a sense, die out the discussion, like obviously there's so many more battles to be won, but I feel as though this won't be sustained or cause a shift. I feel like in the lead up to the vote and in the enactment of legislation, It'll be, obviously be prominent, as it always is, but I don't know if it'll essentially change change the culture of Parliament. In an
1: interesting podcast I listened to this week, um, it's the first episode of Revisionist History, if you want to check it out. Um, it was about how we have moral licensing. Um, and it's this, it's this idea that if when we do one thing that is good, it gives us license to do other things within the same realm of moral um, uh sphere, um, and that are not so morally correct. Um, for example, uh, someone who is racist and votes for Obama is then given license in their mind to do more racist things, uh, because they have voted for, um, a colored man. Um, that is obviously flawed in many ways. Um, and a similar situation could occur, um, uh, within, uh, the Australian government where you give one minority, um, you know, <laughs> um, their rights and then that doesn't lead to more inclusiveness just sort of stops there mm. that is, that was the window of opportunity mm. hopefully we can uh you know be more optimistic but yeah. um i don't i don't know
0: no i definitely agree with you there i'm uh, really hoping that the next two months can go uh go in a way that uh, upholds the values of our society and the beliefs that both young and old australians um believe a comment uh, to living in a society that uh, is both free and cherishes uh, the rights of everyone. So that's all we have time for today, a very brief podcast, both about an issue that is very relevant and coming up very soon, and also about a wider economic externality that plagues all our lives. So just briefly before we depart, I would like to thank our panel members, Yale, Sia. ya. Winona. Bye. And Alex, thanks for listening. And also, I would like to plug S's economic de- uh, economic debate, which will feature Monash versus Melbourne on August the twenty first at Nabarina uh, on Burke Street. We're very excited to present the event and hope to see many of our listeners there. Thank you very much.